You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater. And I'm Daniel Janine, a producer at Eater. Uh, Amanda, I'm just going to ask you, you know, what are we what are we talking about this week? Today, we are talking about rents, restaurant The rents. musical? That's right. Okay. <laughs> uh, why, what's going on with, with restaurateurs and their landlords with a restaurant lawyer? The agreement between tenants and their landlords is probably the single most important factor in in determining or, or seeing what restaurants are staying open and which ones are closing throughout the pandemic. And uh, I'm excited. Cool. And then after we talk to this restaurant lawyer, Jasmine Moy, we are going to talk about some of the biggest stories of the week, including dining domes in San Francisco, what's going on with Uber Eats, mm-hmm. and some other stuff. And some other stuff. But up first, here is Jasmine Moy. Jasmine, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So Jasmine, tell us what you do and the kinds of clients you work with, and then also how the pandemic has affected your business. Um, Sure. So I'm primarily a transactional attorney, which means I'm a business attorney who does nothing but looks at contracts all day. Um, And many of those contracts are leases. Um, So when all of this is going down, I was in the middle of a half a dozen leases, you know, six or seven different leases that were in various stages of negotiation. Um, And the minute people realized that this was looking bad, you know, March 12th or whatever day the the shutdown occurred, um, all of those offers to sign leases got pulled by the, by the tenants, by the person who was, was looking to get into the space. Um, Because I think most of these people saw the writing on the wall. They realized that the rents were possibly going to drop and that certainly there would be a lot more empty um, locations available to them on the other side of this. And also it wasn't a fertile ground to open a restaurant. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, not only that, but, you know, the idea of, of the, you know, the cessation of all of these services, you know, like people weren't going to be able to, you know, we weren't sure if any construction was going to happen. And so it certainly doesn't make sense to commit yourself to a 10 or 15 year lease at a rent that you think is not going to be great in, you know, six months um, with work. You're not sure when it is going to get done for a restaurant that you're not even sure is going to be able to operate uh, the same way that it might have. COVID. It's become clear that a lot of restaurants' ability to survive depends on their relationship with their individual landlord uh, and whether or not that landlord is willing to cut a break. Over the last five months, have you seen a willingness to cut breaks to these tenants or is it just all over the map? Yeah. You know, I would say that this is the one thing that has really, I think, surprised me is that um, for the, all the years that I've been doing this, I think the general perception is that landlords are sort of greedy, you know, jerks and who cares if you don't like your landlord, just sign the lease and, you know, 
most mostly they leave you alone until you're ready to to go. Um, but I do think that this has really brought to light that there's an honest to God difference um, now in who you're working with, the integrity of who you're working with. Um, and and that I think people should be much more selective going forward about their landlord. That being said, I want to caveat this by saying that I've seen this happen um, both ways and that you have a landlord you love, but maybe he dies or maybe he sells the building and then you get a landlord you hate. So even, you know, signing a lease with someone you like is, does not guarantee that for the rest of the term, um, you're going to be taken care of and you'll have this amiable relationship. Um, but I do think it's important, more important now than ever to to not get into a long-term relationship like this with someone who you don't think is a good person, with someone who you don't think you trust, with someone who you don't think um, feels that your business is an asset to their neighborhood or to their property um, and who don't feel like they value you as a tenant, you know, and that they don't give a shit about who's there, whether it's a restaurant or a bank or, or, or whatever. Um, so I do think that that, you know, probably is going to be much more important going forward. And, you know, I have, I don't want to say that even a nice landlord or having a good relationship with a landlord in my experience has ensured a better lease deal. Um, it, I think it helps to have um, a certain amount of goodwill and a good relationship because it means the conversations come are like much more sort of open and productive, but that doesn't mean you're still going to get to the place where both people need to be especially if like the landlord has a mortgage on the property or is otherwise leveraged or otherwise has their own liquidity or like cash flow issues. Some of those folks, their hands are just tied. You know, they're like, we've talked to the bank. The bank is only going to give us as much. We can't give you the kind of discount you're asking for. And a restaurateur then at that point has to have a come to Jesus moment. And they're looking at their numbers and they're saying either I can make this work or I can't make this work. Um, so, you know, a good relationship or a nice landlord isn't even the end-all be-all. It sort of depends on what the other situation, you know, the, the surrounding situations are for that specific landlord, you know. And is it that the corporate landlords are more likely to cut a deal because they have more capital or is the, the other way around, like they're less likely because they're less personal and less intimate? Completely anecdotally, the large landlords um, are making much better deals than small landlords. And I do think that this is directly related to their ability to negotiate with their banks, um, to their liquidity and to their otherwise, you know, their financial diversification and mm -hmm. packages, mm -hmm. you know, a huge developer, you know, might not need all of the, you know, the rent money as urgently as maybe a small landlord right. needs it or a mid-sized landlord needs it. But completely anecdotally, like the best deals I've seen and I've heard of are from larger landlords, institutional landlords. So can you actually talk us through yeah. that? Like what was the trajectory? So for six, what you said, like six weeks, you weren't doing anything because people weren't renegotiating or negotiating new leases. And then what started to happen? Because like we started to hear that restaurants were going to their landlords and, and trying to cut deals. But like, was that the first, was that the next wave of, of business that you were getting? Well, so what happened is like, right when all of this hit, I sent everybody an email and I said, you know, here's what we know. Um, here's what we don't, you know, the PPP then came about and I was like, here's the deal with the PPP. Here's how you can, and can't spend it, you know, start like sit down with your bookkeeper and your accountant, like start running these numbers because we are going to eventually have to put offers together with the landlords. Mm -hmm. But I was also immediately approaching the landlords saying, Hey, um, 
can we get an agreement here that you're not going to try to send default notices, which is what you send someone who's behind in rent in order to, to further the ev an eviction proceeding? I said, you know, can we have an understanding here? You're not going to send any default notices. You're going to give us time to work this out. And everybody immediately said yes. Yes, we're going to give you time, but let's see how this shakes out. Let's see about the PPP. You know, let's see if the amount of rent that can be used, um, you know, the amount of PPP that you can use for pay for rent. Let's see if that changes, which it did. So no, nobody was willing to put anything on paper until they, I think, let the dust settle a little bit, you know, but it, it was my recommendation that everybody open a line of communication saying that they wanted to talk about it, saying that they were ready to have the conversations, but then nobody wanted to have the conversations right then. You know, they all wanted to wait a couple of months to see how bad the virus was going to get and all of the other mm -hmm. things um, before they were willing to make a deal. So I, I don't think any real deal, like substantive conversations about what the deals look like happened until really the, the shift in the PPP you know, requirements changed. And that's when everybody started to get a better handle on their financials. And that's when the Paycheck Protection Program loans shifted from what, 75% on your staff to 60%? To 60. Mm -hmm. So then people could spend much more towards their rent. Yeah, exactly. And I think that actually sort of, I was making a lot of arguments at the time about not paying rent because such a limited amount of the PPP was being able to be used for rent. And having that shift, um, I think... I don't want to say it like pulled the rug out from under me, but it definitely right. changed the argument that I was making and made my argument much less strong about not paying rent during those closed months mm -hmm. because everybody knew, you know, if you had somebody's EIN, you could basically for a while look up how much money they've gotten. Um, so many landlords had a sense of how much money the tenant, you know, their tenant had gotten and said, you could pay rent with this. You could, well, you could pay 100% of your rent with this for these number of months. Right. Um, and so in negotiating, I really switched my, my, my tack. I started saying, okay, well, yeah, we can use that money for rent and we will use it for rent, but the winter is going to be impossible. Um, you know, we're going to have some sidewalk dining until October or whatnot. Um, but it, November, December, January, February, they're going to be really, really hard. If you're going to take a hit on this, I need you to take a hit then. Can we agree to three months of rent abatement? Um, may, and then maybe another month that you use the security deposit as, as rent or something. Hmm. We need four months of a rent-free period in, in the winter. And I've been having like decent success arguing for that. You know, so, so certain landlords are willing to take some sort of a hit. Um, but, you know, they're reluctant to take a hit on the rent for the long term. They are very reluctant to change the rent. Mm -hmm. But they will, for the next year, come up with some sort of alternate situation. Um, but they don't really want to change the rent oh, interesting. going forward. So they don't want to change yeah. what's on the agreement, but they're willing to take like a cash payment of something and then combine with something else. Actually, could you actually give us... Could yeah. you give us some examples of some some deals that you've actually worked out? Sure. I mean, the you know the best deal that I've seen from a client of mine was a huge developer. I can't I can't say which one, but it was a huge developer, and they offered a full rent abatement through the end of the year, so through the end of December, um, and then fifty percent off their rent for the entirety of next year. Oh wow! Um, which I think is great. Um, but this is not a sit down restaurant. This is more of a quick service. So you know, it's it's you know I think that um, the rent, you know, was they have a smaller footprint, mm -hmm. you know, they had a, the rent is not insignificant, but it was smaller than say someone who has two floors of full dining rooms or something. Right. Um, so that's like, you know, the best deal that I've seen, you know, I've, I have a bunch of weird sort of wonky hybrid 
situations where, you know, we, they got in the weeds on their numbers and agreed to various low base rents supplemented with percentage rents for the next like two years. Um, and that if, and for, you know, if, for any three month period, if the percentage rent exceeds whatever the, the base rent would have been in the lease, then you switch back to the lease rent. Everybody wants to get back to the lease rent, but it's a matter of when and what triggers that and for how long you can get a discount um, when we all are not exactly sure what the next 12 to 18 months are going to look mm-hmm. like. Um, so, so, you know, people are finagling very complicated sort of weird tailor-made deals Um but, and like I said, I, I'm trying to prioritize free rent through the winter so that some folks can try to just get through the year mm-hmm. and, uh, and we can hopefully be in a better place, you know, next year and, and come spring. And will you work with clients, like, will you work with new people who are interested in talking to their landlords about making a deal or are you only focused on working with people where you did their contract initially? No, I mean, I will totally talk to, I've I've given out a lot of free time. I will say to existing clients, I have said, you know, this is, this sucks and I don't want to pile on. I'm going to give everybody a certain amount of free time to try to work this out. Um, But for new clients, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I would, I, I, that's an offer for existing, for existing clients, new clients. I'm happy to do it, but I've told them, you know, listen, the last thing they want to be doing is spending money on a lawyer. So what I've been doing is sending people emails that say, if I were you, this is what I would do. I would reach out to my landlord. This is what I'd put together. I would put together a pro forma. I would really put together a proposal. I would explain it. Um, I would make my best effort to get a deal done with the landlord without involving me until you're at the point at which you want to document it in like a lease amendment or something. Um, Cause I just didn't want them to waste money on me mm. when they didn't, when I thought that a lot of this you could do themselves um, and a lot of it, they had to do themselves. So I've been telling people, Hey, have enough conversations on your own first. And if you're not having productive conversations, come to me. Um, but reali- realistically speaking, I'm not a, a litigator. So if, if people are fighting with their landlord, if their landlord's trying to evict them, if they can't come up with a deal and the landlord is threatening to sue them for six months of back rent that they haven't paid, um, you know, I, I'm referring that work out to people who spend all of their time in, you know, landlord tenant court, um, to deal with someone who can, you know, sort of fight this, uh, in, in the, in the courts and, and try to get some protection mm-hmm. that way. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly take a new client to help them negotiate, but a lot of the negotiation is, is on them to, to really figure out where they, where they max yeah. out and what they have the capacity for. They have to do all of that work first before I can help them get to where they need to be. And, if that makes sense. A, a common question I've been getting is why would a landlord rather have a vacant space than have a tenant that's paying a discounted rate? Um, so I know that these people have mortgages if they are mom and pop landlords. At first I thought it might be tax breaks, but then I see that's not necessarily the case, especially in many cities. So what what is the motivation there? It is a direct relation to the that the rent has to the value of the property. And when I talk about the value of the property, I'm not even talking about like the assessed value of the property. I'm talking about the the value of the property to the bank and the security that the bank sees in that building or in that, in the, you know, in, 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 you know, the, the space. Um, because the bank, the, the kind of money a bank will lend to you is directly related to how much 
income you can see from the property and by income on the property, all you're talking about is rent. So the minute you lower the rent, you lower the ability to borrow money or to get any kind of liquidity from a bank. Um, and so people are very reluctant to do that. So they would rather versus reduce, you know, versus lowering the value of their building and reducing the rent, they would rather leave it empty. And, you know, I don't, I'm not a tax attorney, but I do know that there are various write-offs and things you can take if you're taking a loss on any given year. So it, there's no financial incentive to lower the rent on any space because they really, they don't take a hit. There's no, you know, the, it, they, the hit is to them in terms of what they have access to as far as money goes, capital goes. Um, so yeah, you know, it's and until we tax people, you know, until we disincentivize people or find a way to disincentivize them from leaving a, a premises open. Um, you know, I talked to a developer who said he could leave a, a space open for like six years before he'd actually wow. start to lose money. And so, oh so which unless, is a really long time. So, which is why you walk in the West Village and everything's empty, you know, because they can. Unless there's actually a vacancy tax, like in San Francisco, people are just going to keep doing this. They will let their tenants walk rather than lower the rent for them. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Unless, and again, you know, this goes back to what we talked about as as um, as far as a landlord being a partner. Um, sometimes landlords need somebody in there, food and beverage in particular, because maybe they're developing something in a neighborhood that's a little bit of a dead zone, that doesn't have a coffee shop within half a mile, that doesn't have X, Y, or Z. Um, those partnerships are bound to be better partnerships because they need you a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, so to the extent that you're like in a neighborhood that has a ton of walk by um, where the landlord doesn't really care what is in their space. Yeah. They're not going to give a shit and they'll leave it open. Mm-hmm. They'll let you go. They'll leave it open. The people who I think are more incentivized to work at a deal are the people who need you for whatever reason, because they've got this mixed use property because they need a grocery there. They need a coffee shop there. They need a restaurant there. Um, so I do think those sort of projects are probably going to be more attractive to people moving forward because the landlord actually has a vested interest in your success. Huh. So, so just in terms of um, of the deals you're seeing, that makes sense uh, that the larger corporate uh, landlords would be much more interested or would be entirely uninterested in in renegotiating a contract because the last thing they would want to do is have a lower rent on paper mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. they can't borrow against it. That's so interesting. So. And the mom and pops too. Right, right, right. So if they do cut restaurants or cut anyone a, a deal and say, you know, we'll rent, we'll allow you to dodge rent or, or skip rent for the winter, does that not leave any kind of paper trail for them? And like the, the banks wouldn't see that in terms of in, in their borrowing practices? So what happens is like the, the, the base rent on paper is the base rent. Okay. So in all of these amendments that you're drafting, you're talking about a base rent, but then maybe discounts. Gotcha. So the base rent is the base rent. You know, nobody is lowering the base rent. They're sort of adding verbiage to give discounts the same way in any lease that you mm. sign, you have a free rent period. Mm-hmm. So you have a base rent, but the rent is abated, which means you just don't pay it for a certain period. Mm-hmm. So what we what all of these amendments are, are like amendments at the base rent, but with percentage abatements, you know, percentages of the rent abated so that the base rent stays the same. It's not being altered. And when you give that to the bank, um, while the bank understands that for the next six months, there's some um, differential there, 
they know that after that period, the base rent is a base rent and that's what they'll be able to see. And, you know, banks are giving forbearances on mortgages and things like that, you know, for the most part. So, um, you know, these landlords by and large are not having to pay mortgage uh, during periods in which they're not collecting rent. Um, but, you know, every landlord has a different cash flow situation. Mm-hmm. And listen, some landlords don't have mortgages on their properties and some lands are just being greedy. Mm-hmm. You know, wow. some of them are just, you know, I have a client who had just built out oh, the Banty Rooster, Dolores um, Tronco, um, had, had opened the Banty Rooster in, in the village, put a lot of money into that space and made it beautiful. And I think her landlord was completely, they have no mortgage on the property. Her landlord was completely unwilling to make a deal with her because I think she's looking at it and saying, oh, you just added, you know, millions of dollars worth of improvements. Mm. And so I'm going to be able to sell this. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have to drop the rent because someone's going to get, you know, all of this stuff. Wow. Um, and that was a new restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. That's a new, yeah. That was a new restaurant. And, and, you know, she, she might be right. So in a case like the, in the case, like the, the Banty rooster, where obviously you're not happy with the, uh, I guess the ethics of the landlord, mm-hmm. Will you steer for uh, future clients away from that property, like or from oh, that? One hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she. You know, that landlord is someone who who. Um, I hope Dolores doesn't mind me talking about it a little bit, but you know, Dolores is a very like a diligent like worker. She's so smart. She's so organized. She communicated at every turn. She wanted this woman, her name is Shelly. She wanted Shelly to be happy at every turn. And like, I just feel like Shelly did not even meet her halfway from the time she signed the lease. You know, they dragged her feet on doing the work that they were supposed to do. Um, you know, and, and I think this woman's not like a developer. I think this is like an investment property for her. I don't think she has three or four buildings under management. I think this might be her building. She lives in Connecticut somewhere. She just doesn't, I just don't think that she cares because she's not invested in the neighborhood. She doesn't right. live there um, because she doesn't have a whole lot of buildings in the neighborhood. You know, some people uh, are very invested in, in making a neighborhood nice mm-hmm. um, because they bought 15 buildings in that neighborhood. I thought this was, you know, but this woman has been difficult from start to finish. Um, and so if somebody came to me saying, I want to sign a lease here, I would probably strongly recommend it <laughs> against them doing so. Um, right. She has, you know, she's proven herself to be someone who is, is completely unreasonable. <laughs> so, so it, it might, it might not be the case that she, uh, has, she sees this as a huge opportunity to get someone to pay for the work that they've done. And, and maybe just that, she understands rent on a very like fundamental level. If you don't get paid rent, then you kick the person out. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know mm-hmm. exactly what's going through her, you know, her head <laughs> at any given time, but, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, that was one of the only landlords that I've dealt with who wasn't willing to give a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really wasn't. So most people are willing to give somewhat, but maybe it's not enough. You know, if I'm the operator and I've done the math and I say, I really cannot survive unless I have X, and the landlord is coming in at X plus, you know, $3,000, they just can't make it work, you know, but that doesn't mean the landlord didn't try. It doesn't mean you didn't try. It still might not work. So I guess maybe on a lighter note, are you starting to negotiate deals for future restaurants that are like maybe better than you would have expected or, or what everyone's talking about is like this wonderfully exciting time to plan for a new restaurant. Yeah, you, I, I am. Um, I'm in the middle of like four different leases right now, um, which is sort of a lot for me. I usually only have one or two at a time. Um, I am. And all of these concepts are casual, you know, casual concepts that are 
prime for delivery, you know, a Chinese thing here, a, you know, a, a Vietnamese thing there. Um, so, so spaces that we're already planning on doing a ton of takeout and delivery anyway, um, those people are doing it. And I have to say, I don't think market rents have really dropped mm. so much yet. I do think, you know, when I talk to brokers, they always say it takes at least six months, if not 12 months for market rents to sort of reflect the situation on the ground. So, you know, I don't think that these rents that I'm seeing are super, super below market, but they just are spaces that people saw were available and think that they can support with a takeout and carry out, you know, takeout and delivery only. You know, nobody's going to sign a lease right now if the rent is so high that they need to dine in or that they need to have dine in alcohol or that they need a cafe or outdoor seating section. Um, and so these, you know, these are spaces, you know, a little deeper in Brooklyn, um, you know, a couple spaces in Queens, spaces where the rents are generally lower and more approachable anyways. Are the brokers you're talking to predicting like next summer would be a good time? Like, let's say I have some savings and a concept and I want to open a new thing. Should I just sit on it until next spring or summer? Um, you know what? I don't, I don't think it, well, number one, a broker, once they're, they're, uh, they're brokers free, they're <laughs> right. never going to recommend to anybody <laughs> sure. to not find something. They're always going to be incentivizing somebody to find something as soon as possible so that they can start getting paid. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think our friends are going to drop. It's going to be a while. That said, you know, a, a landlord who has a mortgage property, who has a mortgage on their property, who has to pay rent and who doesn't have the cash flow and who is in danger of losing the property like defaulting on their loan and losing the property in foreclosure, they will lower their rent. They will drop their rent to whatever their rent needs to be in order for them to get paid. So, you know, there will be some people who will drop the rent because they are desperate for tenants, not, but that's not going to be everybody. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's only going to be the people who don't have the cash flow otherwise. So rents will drop and some rents will drop a lot, but I don't know, you know, it's all going to depend, I think, on that exact landlord's situation, mm -hmm. the trouble that they're in with their bank or, or whatnot. Um, and I don't know that it will be neighborhood specific. Um, and, and I think there probably are certain neighborhoods that are, you know, I think the West Village, I think of Soho, the where rents are just consistently high because people just walk around those neighborhoods. They're good neighborhoods to open spaces in. Um, you know, they just may not drop there like mm -hmm. at all. I know you also do partnerships between chefs and hotels and help mm -hmm. hotels fill out their spaces. What is going on in that world? Yeah, I, you know, so a few hotel projects that I'm working on. So I do work for Virgin Hotels. Um, so some of that work is so far uh, planned out. Uh, you know, the, these are spaces that are in construction that are not going to open for another year or two years. Um, you know, I've got a project, um, you know, in, in Dubai that's like three years away. But all of that is moving as if nothing is mm -hmm. happening literally as if nothing is happening. Um, they're not changing the concepts at all or anything like that. They're just like, all right, let's keep going. No. And I'm like, is this, yeah, I, it's, it's not necessarily my realm to tell these like larger corporations that I think they need to be taking this more seriously, but like, um, it's, it's, no, I mean, you know, all of these hotel spaces have like rooftop bars and outdoor spaces and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, and for the most part, the hotel deals, um, are on a, they pay, a, you know, the, the person running the food and beverage gets paid a fee, a management mm -hmm. fee that's based upon sales. So it's in everybody's best interest for the restaurant to do well. And if it doesn't do well, everybody takes the hit, you know, the food and beverage operator and the owner take the hit. Um, 
so all, you know, most of those, most of these deals are percentage deals. You know, there might be some like base level to the fee that is sort of low, but, but otherwise it's on a percentage basis. So, you know, the way that we are changing those documents is usually the hotel owner has the right to terminate the management agreement. If sales are not at a certain level, the things that I'm negotiating are like taking away the ability for them to terminate based on sales. If, Revenues are low because we're still dealing with right, pandemic. Right, right. So, you know, I'm, tr- I'm sort of trying to take away the ability to fire the food and beverage operator for causes that are sort of beyond their control. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, you know, those documents stay, you know, pretty, pretty consistent. But, you know, for the folks that I have who are doing food and beverage management in hotels, you know, a lot of this space is indoors. You know, they, they don't have a ton of outdoor space depending on where they are. So they're, they're, making mm-hmm. do they're doing their best but you know they're facing the exact same issues as restaurateurs are in terms of needing to have the tables far away fighting with people who don't want wear their masks mm-hmm. and you know all of the other issues you know the operational stuff is it's very consistent with what a normal restaurateur is dealing with they just don't have the burden of rent um you know it's 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 usually a percentage rent mm-hmm. in in the in the hotel food and beverage deals, you can't, it's not technically rent, the like quote unquote rent. Um, it's not usually fixed. It's usually a percentage. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, when everything is on a percentage, you know, rising tides, lift all boats, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, so the hotels quote unquote rent, you know, the percentage they take from those sales is going to be lower. Um, and, and sometimes that is a problem because you don't ever build a hotel, a hotel with cash you have, you build a hotel mm-hmm. with, you know, the, $50 million you borrowed from the bank or whatever. So, you know, that is affecting a lot of hotel owners. They're having real cash flow liquidity issues. Quick question on that. Why would they ever bother? Yeah. Why would they want to kick out a restaurant um, that they need? Because you need a, re- a food and beverage operator in a hotel space. Like what would mm-hmm. be their incentive to uh, to try to kick out an operator now? Because like even when the whole thing isn't making any money. Well, I think you I think look at the flip side of that. Why are we paying this person a premium? You know, there are a lot of hotel companies that mm-hmm. will open a restaurant and they'll run it. And it frankly, it's probably going to be a crap restaurant. It's going to be like fine, not right. great. I'm thinking of like no offense to like Kimpton, but I'm thinking of Kimpton, who usually does their own food sure. and beverage. If you've ever stayed in a Kimpton, maybe you've been at a restaurant. It's like fine. Right. <laughs> it's not amazing. If you want somebody like good, like John you George. know, if you want someone, right. yeah, if you want a John George, if you want to zhuzh it up, if you want to, that, that food and beverage operator to be a draw and to increase the room rate, you pay that person a premium, yeah. you know, you pay them for it. And so I think some of these relationships are, if they're being terminated or considered being terminated, it's because they paid a lot extra for a chef to bring in people who are not going to exist no matter how famous that chef is. So why spend that extra money? I think is the, but yeah, I mean, they still need food and beverage, but they can maybe cobble something together themselves or that maybe they can find a no name company, you know, this anonymous company who just runs in and knows how to make eggs in the morning and be done with it, you know? So not in the case necessarily of Jean-Georges, but like a Jean-Georges might be getting paid right now, even though he's not, even though they're not selling any food. Yeah. You know, if, if you are, are famous enough or good enough at what you do, you've negotiated a base fee. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fee could be anywhere, you know, between, you know, $150,000 oh, yeah. to $500,000 a year. Um, that being said, I, you know, I've talked to 
people who are uh, familiar with the workings of some of these other chefs, you know, other deals that are not mine and not of my clients. And they're saying we haven't been paid, mm. you know, so, so maybe they're owed that money. They probably have not been paid that money. Um, you know, so you may have a lot of food and beverage operators who are leaving hotels because they haven't been paid the minimum that they negotiated. Interesting. You know, the hotel owner might just be sort of stiffing them on that because same reason a lot of hotel, you know, restaurateurs are stiffing their landlords. They just don't have the money. Right. Because hotels are just so screwed right now. They're so screwed. They're so screwed. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I think a lot of those deals are going to fall apart just because they're expensive. But when everybody's going out to eat and when everybody's traveling, um, it makes, you know, it's, it's a, it's a benefit to them, net benefit, but right now it's a net negative. Cool. Well, Jasmine, where can, um, restaurateurs find you? Um, I'm at restaurantlawyer.nyc. So restaurantlawyer.nyc. I'm also on Twitter, Jasmine Moy on Twitter. Awesome. And please, please pay Jasmine if you can. (laughs) (laughs) When I bill. (laughs) Whenever that'll be. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jasmine. Good luck through all this. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Next up, we have Eve Beatty from San Francisco to tell us about these dining igloos that they have in your town. Hey, Eve. Hey, guys. Tell us about these domes. Here in San Francisco at a very fine dining sushi place, we have these clear tents they look like imagine a soccer ball cut in half but clear that um, diners enter they have two sittings a night it's a fixed price menu of $200 a person and four people can sit at a table so if they're fully booked they'll pay off the $1,400 that each one of those tents costs uh, Mm -hmm. pretty fast and so why why, yeah why (laughs) why why eat in a tent and Mm -hmm. fart I cannot imagine that it doesn't have a little bit of a poolside odor, <laughs> at least until you like sort of fully right. air it out. Um, and it's it's a decent size. Like imagine a little tent that fits comfortably over, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a picnic table. Um, it does not look claustrophobic, nor and since it's clear, you know, I suppose it's not claustrophobic. They have little sort of windows that you can unzip to get some air through, but obviously you don't want too much air because they're sort of pitching it as like, you know, a gigantic mask that is keeping you safe from, I guess, other diners. And also the area which the um, restaurant owners are, you know, have said, well, the restaurant manager has said many times, well, this isn't a great area. This is a problematic area. And he's not necessarily wrong. There are certainly homeless people in the area. There is certainly drug use in the area. There was a fatal shooting half a block away at 3.15 in the afternoon wow. yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know. So it's threefold. So you are protected from yeah. the virus, apparently. You are protected mm-hmm. from the weather. And you are protected from the riffraff on the street. Well, I mean, I guess... The protection from the riffraff is, uh, you know, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder. It's a there's a clear piece of plastic between you and the mm-hmm. alleged riffraff, right? So you you are still eating two hundred dollar, you know, a night sushi and looking at 
troubled people. If that's something that you have a problem with, then uh, you're probably not going to want to eat in a clear tent. This is something that has come up a lot, though, for us in San Francisco with outdoor dining. Um, I, I moderated a panel. Hey, you guys, impressed I moderated a panel. I moderated a panel for one of the really the biggest commercial landlords in San Francisco uh, earlier in the pandemic. And as soon as it got to the question and answer period, the questions that were passed on to me were like, well, what do we do about the homeless? And of course, you know, I did all my school marmy questions like, please refer to them as homeless people and things like that. But, you know, this is something it's that the, the unhoused, I believe. Well, that is also fine. The undomiciled, all of that stuff is fine. The homeless community, but just the homeless, that always, sort of, yeah, what are you saying? Um, but, you know, I think that this is something that if you are eating outside and a troubled person comes up to you and causes problems, that's going to be a bummer if that troubled person's a drunk frat guy or someone who lives on the street. It's going to be a bummer and it's going to have a negative impact on your outdoor dining experience. So I understand why, you know, people are worried about that. But I don't know, there is something about these tents that I think uh, sits incorrectly for a lot I of think, people. I think bigger a bigger story than the tents it seems to me was just how much outrage these tents caused online and like how many pieces were written about the tents oh, why, yeah. why why do you, do you think it was just that they are such an obvious metaphor for the insane class uh bubble yeah the class bubble or the or the class discrepancies in in san francisco's dining scene or in san francisco as a whole I think that, I mean, I think that that's sort I, I think that we can't sort of underestimate the amount of outrage and frustration that everyone feels about everything mm-hmm. every day. And, and rightfully so. It's a frustrating time. Everyone's frustrated and angry about everything. And having something that you can glom onto, like these tents, feels a little easier to be angry about than like, uh, how do we fix right. the police? So I think that that's something that it's, if you are concerned and frustrated about class disparity, which I'm hopeful that everyone is, then that's something that's a little easier to get your head around and, you know, and, and complain about and be frustrated about and argue against. There's a lot being of people reading into the idea that like these tents are making people feel safe. Like the only way the rich will go out to dine is with a barrier, a protective barrier between them and homeless people, which is insane because like, it's not a protective barrier. No, like if anything, it's, it, it's like, Hey, look at these idiots dining in a clear plastic tent. I'm going to go fuck with them because they almost have, they have this clear plastic target surrounding them rather than like any kind of actual protection and be like that the restaurant would have this idea that this tent would make these people feel like special and separate. I think the restaurant was just like, how can we offer a slightly uh, an experience where people feel a little bit more like they're inside, even though they're outdoors. I can't imagine they had any idea to play into any kind of uh, class based stereotypes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I think you're right. And I think, you know, when you really look at the on the ground coverage and not sort of like the think pieces mm-hmm. in the reblog, um, it's always someone asking the person, um, the, asking the restaurant manager, like, oh, so is the neighborhood a problem or something? And he always speaks about it very politically. There was a radio interview that um, I listened to where he's talking to the interviewer on the scene and you can hear someone screaming in the background. And he says, like, so, you know, there are things like that. So you can see why, you know, just having the tables out in the area was tough. Okay. Tell me this, Eve. What is the weather like in San Francisco right now? 
We are about to have a heat wave, but that is sort of a lie in San Francisco proper. But, but this is a great thing that you're bringing up because Mint Plaza is not especially windy, which is a big problem in some areas of downtown San Francisco when it comes to outdoor dining. You know, the things sort of blow briskly down the street and into your plate. Mint Plaza is sort of socked in, so it's typically like sort of okay, except if it's a little bit chilly. Now, when it gets hot, are you going to want to be in a clear tent? Right. Aren't you going to feel like an ant under a magnifying glass? Yeah, no one's going to want that. Um, but yeah. I bet mm-hmm. as winter rolls in to the rest of the country, there are going to be some more igloos. Like we're going to we're gonna spot igloos all over New York come December. And there'll be less of a critique of them because they'll just be everywhere. Yeah, because it, and cause it'll make more sense. But I also feel like if you were somewhere that was especially sunny, which you know, San Francisco typically is not having an opaque tent over your diners. It, that would, you know, like this tents, like you see at street fairs or something that wouldn't cause any sort of thing. Now you add like maybe the sort of the sides that you see to some of those tents and that sort of zip up door. Now, is that going to be a big deal? It's not going to be a big deal from a, Oh no, you hate the homeless thing. But at a certain point too, I think that we need to talk about what is going to keep you safe from the coronavirus. And if we're not going to eat indoors, then why is it safe to eat in a tent? Is it safe to eat in the tent? Because we're with, you know, these three other people that are part of our social bubble. Are those the only people that we're eating with? At a certain point, you're just sort of like- like a COVID hot box. Doesn't it feel like it could be? Like, I'm not saying that that's what it is. I'm assuming that the people who are going out to eat here are, you know, eminently responsible and are, you know, only eating with the people that, you know, they already Mm -hmm. are with. But who knows? And so that's something that I wonder about, too, because anytime I'm, which is very rare, but anytime I'm in sort of close quarters with someone or near someone, I was interviewing a chef in, you know, his kitchen, and we walked back to an area, and um, I was like, wow, we're sort of close, even though we're masked, and I felt a little anxious. Um, you know, I'm thinking about that now. Is Are people thinking about that when they're in a tent, or is that that, that same sort of thing like you have with outdoor dining? Like, oh, I'm sitting down now, I'm safe. Right. It does kind of take away the added benefits of outdoor dining, which is the dissipation of the air and the wind and all that. Like that's you're not getting that inside a tent. Eve, while we have you here, there was some big news from the Uber Eats and I guess the Uber camp talking about their Q2 results. It certainly is. um, That Uber Eats actually did more business than Uber rides. I am so glad you brought this up, Dan, because moments before we started to record this. I just finished uh, writing a story for Eater San Francisco on this very issue, um, which people can visit our site and read on their own. So there are a couple interesting things here. One is that Uber's never been profitable. Everybody knows that. And two, when we go to Uber Eats, that Uber Eats is doing better than ever. So like the actual numbers are before me. Uber's ride hail business, which is the business that even those of us, I think, in the, you know, sort of the food writing world think about. Um, Uber's ride hail business was down by 73% year over year, which makes sense, right? Because people are staying home. But that's like over everywhere too. So even places like wherever Georgia or something where people are going out, it's still down 73% year over year. And Uber Eats grew by 113% -hmm. year over year in exactly that same period. Uber Eats is, um, you know, like sort of basically did double the business that Uber's rides business did in the last quarter. And once again, this is for the whole company, right? So this is everywhere in the world where it operates, not just in the US. Now, this is especially interesting to me because right now in California, 
Uber is engaged in this battle regarding the classification of his workers, right? And because um, California officials implemented this law that took, took effect in January of this year, saying that Uber drivers and all of those contract workers, their Postmates, DoorDash, name a gig company, it's on it. They all need to be reclassified as employees if they work in California. This is really expensive. It's terrifying to all these companies. So Postmates, DoorDash, Instacart, and Uber all banded together to promote this ballot proposition that'll be on the ballots in November to sort of undo that law. So in the interim, there's this court decision that says that Uber and Lyft, which does not have a food delivery business, just riot hail business, need to reclassify their drivers. I couldn't tell from the decision if they were just saying, you know, drivers, drivers, everybody who drives for them, or just ride hail drivers. And before I could figure that out, the CEO of Uber said, well, we're just going to pull out of San Francisco, it, um, mm. at least until November, because this isn't going to work. So I thought, well, this is really exciting. Does that mean Uber eats and possibly Postmates, since Uber now, you know, is in the process of buying Postmates, might just go away, clearing the space for DoorDash. Um, so I emailed this one Uber person who sent me to another Uber person who sent me to another Uber person, and they finally said, oh, no, it's just the ride hail people. So this big threat, oh, we're going to pull out of California, is kind of like, I'm going to take away the thing that nobody's <laughs> using already, but I'm going to leave behind the one thing that everybody is still using, because no officials have looked at that yet. So all it really takes is for more officials to give scrutiny to delivery drivers for Instacart, Postmates, DoorDash, and all that for the you know delivery app shit to really hit the fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting because I know just from my work that we had to reclassify employees ahead of January because we were so, yeah. it wasn't that we were worried. We're like, this is the law. We have to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, or we might get sued or we might get in trouble. So we have to do this thing in California. And the fact that they are just flouting that is is crazy to me. Well, we will continue to keep an eye on it. Thank you, Eve, for all your reporting. Thank you. Domes and delivery. <laughs> <laughs> Name of my the memoir. San Francisco beat. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Shall we move on to some uh, lighter news? Yeah. I mean, not lighter because it's talking about colleges not reopening, but um, the... If you look across the country, it seems like uh, so far, according to uh, uh, data from the Chronicle of Higher Education, um, approximately 500 colleges so far that have announced are planning to function as normal. 350 have reported that they are going to function primarily online uh, with a lot that are still undecided. But um, there is a story about college dining halls rethinking the way that they function, which uh, is is pretty sad. Just, you know, it, it, and it draws it. It's exactly what we've seen from buffets across the country, which is just that uh, they're no longer buffets. They are restaurants where they show you the food where you order and you pick. Um, that's basically what you're going to be able to do at these college dining halls. You tell them what you want. But I think the most tragic aspect of this is that they're now some of them are now looking at using open table to schedule the time that you go and eat at your college. And, uh, this is just like the least college thing ever. The idea of like, you know, seeing someone on campus and be like, let's go grab a quick grilled cheese. Uh, and then having to like check open table and it's like, sorry, there are, you know, there are already 50 students in the cafeteria right now. Um, 
we have time at 4 p.m. or whatever. Like, just, I don't know. It's. Yeah, that sucks. Also, like, goodbye to the build your own salad bar and like all that fun stuff. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now. For now. Yeah, for now. I think they're doing more grab and go too. Like I think that's the big focus is like filling up the fridges with grab and go stuff. These stories, there's been a bunch of them, um, really just conveys the mass aspect of running dining halls and running college dining is just like you are feeding so many people all yeah. at once. And it's like, you know, you have to be a machine. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that seems like such a story from a former time. Do you remember the big uh, Malcolm Gladwell expose on uh, how his cynical take on the expansive dining programs done by various colleges and how they represent yeah. like this great privilege that is pretty unnecessary to the educational experience? Yeah. Who cares about that shit anymore, right? <laughs> Isn't that kind of nice? That stressed me out for a bit. I don't yeah. care. Now it... All that matters is how good they are at remote learning. Daniel, thank you, as always, for taking the time to talk about all these issues with me. Oh, no problem. Glad to be here to let you get things off your chest, you know? (laughs) Uh, Thank you to Jasmine Moy. Thank you to Eve Beatty. We will be back next week with more. Okay, see you soon. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 